In this episode, Paul Sheriff, CFO at New Day, describes the big shifts in his path towards becoming a CFO, explains how to forecast in unprecedented times like a pandemic, and outlines why technology and tools allow his teams to do more with less. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We'd love your feedback. Paul, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Ross, thank you very much for having me. I'd love to understand, Paul, and, and learn a bit more about how you got to where you are, because you've had a storied career, a very lengthy career, and you've been a finance leader and a CFO uh, of several large organizations. And you've also been uh, a finance leader through several seminal moments in economic history, including the pandemic, the financial crisis, and so forth. So can you uh, explain a little bit about how you got to where you are from the origins of an auditor, uh, Arthur Anderson? So look, like many, I started my career in the practice. I trained with Arthur Anderson, that's clearly no longer around, but nevertheless, great training. I think, you know, what that gives you is that insight of you look back on it and you think, gosh, I was talking to leaders of businesses almost straight out of university and getting insight into business across multiple companies at a very early stage in my career. And it kind of opened your eyes to the business world in a way that you might not have get, got through other professions. I think like many, you progress through the profession, you reach a certain point. And for me, it was reaching a manager level at Arthur Anderson and you know, looking forward and thinking, actually, I, I didn't want to continue that journey to be a partner and moving out. And I was probably fortunate at the time that I went into private equity business for a period of time. And then really what happened then was a bit by chance more than anything else that was post the dot-com crash I took initially a role at the Prudential and over a series of a couple of years, went from what was a a relatively junior position managing a very small team to managing a more significant team and having responsibility for a significant part of that business from a commercial perspective. I I think then I reached um, a crossroads in my career where it was a little bit about, do I keep going with a, a view to moving progressively up in larger organizations? Or do I take a step change and become a CFO in an independent role? And, you know, I chose the path to go down into a a step into a smaller organization and become a CFO. But I recognized I had to take, you know, best a lateral move. But in some ways, you'd say I was going to a much smaller business with more responsibility or autonomy. And for me, that was a really seminal moment in my career and one I've not looked back on that I've really enjoyed being a CFO and I've done it in different listed businesses, unlisted businesses in the UK, internationally. But it's really that that stepping into what looks like then the unknown 
because hitherto you've been kind of shielded by the organization in a larger organization and all of a sudden the buck stops with you and you've got responsibility things and we can come on to it you know that first step was into the banking world and little did i know a couple of years later we would have the great financial crisis and i'd be cfo of um a, a listed banking group going through those moments in history. And then more recently, in the business I'm in today, we've clearly been through more recently the COVID um, crisis. But to me, that seminal moment was making that change into being a standalone CFO. And then it's really about, for me, it's been broadening that into, at certain points, I've been both chief operating officer and chief financial officer. The role I'm in currently, I'm just chief financial officer of what is a growing business. And if we could touch on that movement, as you said, from the, the larger organization to more an independent, smaller one, but taking on the role of CFO, I'm sure that you must have thought long and hard about whether that's the right move and then trying to estimate the the direction of the the company you're joining is a lot harder because they're smaller, they're more independent, it carries more risk. So what was it like weighing that up and what was it that convinced you to make that move in the end? I think what it convinced me was having consulted with a number of people and also seen that, you know, in a larger organization, yes, I had an important role, but I didn't have more broader experience. So, for instance, you know, I was in a FTSE 100 business to Prudential, but I didn't have any investor relations experience. And at a certain point, you know, it felt to me like you were going to reach a glass ceiling, whereas if you hadn't got that attribute in your career, it's difficult to get in the organization. And as a result of that, it was really about broadening out and ticking those boxes that I'd never been able to do and having that opportunity to do that in a different organization. And for me, the attraction, I went to a business called Arbuthnot Banking Group at the time was, it, it, it was a very interesting business because of its breadth of activities from retail banking, private banking. At the time, it had a, an, an investment bank as well albeit they were on a much smaller scale, but nevertheless, it was broadening out in, into those areas, which enabled me to learn, develop about those over the coming years. So you were in financial services as well, which is, and I'd love to touch on that a little bit later, the, the complexities there, but you went in and then you had to have full responsibility for a whole raft of areas that you had never covered before. So what was that like? You know, a, a voyage of discovery is in some ways, you know, some areas you were very familiar with it, but, you know, I'd come up, I'd come up the prudential through what I'd term a commercial finance route. So uh, analysis, reporting, management information, those areas, business partnering, I was very familiar with. It was more that lean across into financial reporting and also into investor relations and the specifics about the business lines that I was going into. But what you do in that is there's always a lead on to taking these roles. You seek the views of, of experts and people you can lean on before you start the role. And you rely to a degree on the good people you've got in the organizations to bring you up to speed. Nobody as a CFO hits the ground running and can say they understand the business as soon as they, they start that role. It takes a period of time to learn and evolve and really understand how things work and what you're then going to do to, to move the business forward, where you're going to choose to devote your time and energies and what you can do to, to really help that business succeed. And so now since that role, of course, you've taken on CFO position uh, a, a few more times. 
So do you now have like an approach for how you, like almost like a blueprint for how you start, what you look at, the type of things that you would plan to do or look at in your first 90 or 180 days? I think you always go in with a view of the things you want to look at in that first 100 days. And I would put it into categories. I think by the time you've got been in an organization for 100 days, you're starting to form a very good view of the capabilities of the team you've got that you've inherited, where the strengths are, where the weaknesses are, any potential changes, both in structure and individuals you might likely have to make within that, that environment. You've also got a very good grasp of the capabilities from a technology perspective in terms of what systems, how it works, how things come together, and an understanding of the issues that you need to address and in what time span you're going to have to address them. And then I think what you do is you, you look to set an agenda. Nobody can really look five years out in business these days. The world's moving too quickly. I always tend to look two, three years. What steps do we want to take in that two, three years? And, and where would you like to see the finance function over that period of time? And, and why is that better than where you're starting from? It is interesting that you say that because you've been in very established companies, large, complex organizations. So that two or three year time frame makes a lot of sense. Sometimes when we speak to uh, CFOs at very early stage scale ups or startups that might be privately owned series ABC, they're lucky if they can think 12 months ahead, 18 months ahead. And so that that's like the, the maximum that they can foresee because the level of change is so vast. But I think what you do is you then break it down. So let me give you an example of New Day, and we might come on to technology, but what I did was I said, okay, from um, an operating model basis, and we'll call it a target operating model, in three years' time, this is where we would like to be. And then you kind of work your way back and put it into bite sizes of almost years' worth of work and say, where do I want to invest time and resource year one, year two, year three? that helps me on that journey to get to that end state. And of course, the end state is constantly changing in itself. You don't say, I've fixed in three years' time, and that's exactly where I'm aiming, because the world will have changed in three years' time. But nevertheless, by evaluating that, you're looking at where you're choosing to invest and where you're choosing to invest the time to improve things on a kind of what gives me the best benefit for the business as you progress along that journey. And then I presume the, the artistry is always in prioritizing because the, the, sometimes the three-year vision can be the easy part because it's a wish list of a lot that you want to achieve, but then figuring out where to start is, is often the hardest piece. Absolutely. Figuring out where to start and which pieces. And I think I always use the spinning plate analogy that if you imagine I'm trying to balance a, a spinning plate on a stick, there's not much point in having 20 plates because all I do is go round and spin each plate a little bit and don't really move forward that quickly. I would be much better picking my three biggest bets and really, to use the analogy a bit further, shoring it up with some um, scaffolding so the plate's actually standing still and I don't need to go round and twiddle it to keep it um, in the air. Choosing those like three big bets or any big bets that you do choose, like, what helps you make those decisions and say no to the, the remainder of the list? I mean, I, I think you come back to the modern role of a CFO. I think, you know, you've got to start with the absolutely foundation blocks of being a CFO and running a finance function are 
the numbers need to be right. You need to get through your audit. Your finance processes need to work efficiently, effectively. And you need to do all your compliance tax and everything else work. I think in any organization, you need to assess how good that is on the way in, because unless that is the bedrock that works, you don't get the latitude to play elsewhere because you'll just always be dragged back into fixing issues in that space. I think, you know, depending on how you find that, then gives you the latitude. And certainly I've built my career about how you commercially support the business, how you drive the business forward. And I think when you look at the biggest bang for the buck, it's that, to me, it's a lot of that data and that data insight that really is now as you to, to adapt and pivot as you move forward. And, you know, I think gone are the days where, you know, as a business, you did an annual budget and that was it. You didn't revisit it. You just monitored your performance against that annual budget. We're in a process whereby we are doing some form of forecasting every single month. And we're not just looking out to the end of the current calendar year. We're looking out what we term eight quarters. So at the moment, we're looking out to saying in this month, what is our forecast telling us? But it's not just to the end of 22, it's to the end of 23. And how are we making decisions and how are we improving things on that outlook basis you know, and, and what, does it, what does it all mean? And in order to do that, you need, first of all, good MI on the, on the business, not just the finances, but some of the underlying operating metrics of the business. And you need good tools to support that, that. You know, the example I would give you at New Day is when I arrived, all that budgeting and forecasting was done um, in Excel. Lots of businesses will be familiar with that. It's been historic and endemic within finance for, what, 20 odd years? certainly through most of my career. But what Excel is very good at, it's very good at being flexible. It's very good at doing things quickly. It's very good, you know, in users intuitively using them. What it's not very good at is having multiple people working on things concurrently. And it's not very good at speedily being able to adapt because Excel doesn't help you as much as it could do. What we've looked at doing, and I think this is much more modern in the last five years, is I think the advent of cloud-based solutions. And I think what cloud-based solutions give you the ability is to get things in quicker than you would have been able to do five, six years ago. So as an example, we picked a tool called Anaplan, which is it's a great tool, a modern tool. It's a well-respected organization. But what it enabled us to do is to get it in within two or three months. And we progressively built modules of the budget into Anaplan such that over the next sort of six to nine months, we built the whole thing. And now we've got a, an awesome tool that means we can have 20, 30 people working on the budget at the same time. We can consolidate and produce all the output in probably a matter of an hour with what used to take three or four days. And so you just become much more agile and nimble and you're able to adapt quicker because the world around us is forever getting quicker and quicker at pace. It's interesting that you emphasize speed there as well, because the recent guest said the same thing we were talking about, like why they would invest in technology, where they would start. And one of the messages that he said was that anything that allows his team to move faster is something that he'll be interested at least in considering. And so as part of that, I, I, I was laughing that the business case in a way is not just down to cost savings, which is the classical business case. It's actually all about being able to move faster and liberating your team from like unnecessary burdens that do slow them and, and the company down. Yeah, and I'd, I'd echo, I'd agree entirely with what you just said. My philosophy has always been, let's automate what we can and get it more efficient 
so that we can have people spending their time on more value-added activities. That's both, it, it, it reduces the mundane work. It means they've got more interesting things to do. And frankly, they're having more interactions and more interesting conversations. And to put it into context, at New Day, I've been here six years. The business has more than doubled on any measure you kind of care to mention, but increasingly invested in that and redeployed. So we've probably grown, although the business has more than doubled in size, we've probably only added about a third in terms of finance headcount because we've automated and we've upskilled. And, you know, today I've got a department whereby, you know, a significant group of people are facing off to the business areas and our trusted business partners. And that is really rewarding for them. And also means that as a business, the finance professionals have got really great insight, really understand the areas they're focusing on and can provide the executives of those business areas with really mean insight. And this is a little bit, you start pushing it, we can help you. And then it's like this tsunami of, well, we need your help. And when you get that, you've really got it working. And when I see, I don't know, heads of departments with someone from finance and the chief executive, I don't necessarily need to be in the room, but it's great to see that they're trusted enough to be in that conversation, which is really giving them great experience and great exposure for their careers. Well, it's interesting that you say that because you also alluded to the fact that Prudential, you were also a business partner. That was a big part of your role. Whereas some of our guests have mentioned the importance of business partnering, but I think there's a whole host of teams and, and particularly finance teams that just don't have the time. They're too stretched. That Maybe they've got other priorities. In some cases, it's that the, the, they don't value it quite the same way. But is that business partnering always been part of your approach and the approach that you want for your teams? Or has it changed over time and, and increased in emphasis? I, I think it's increased in emphasis. I think what's interesting in this is those progressive organizations have really valued it and invested in it. So even in my day, I mean, my, my journey at the Prudential was I came in in a commercial role to add some commercial discipline to a change program. What they recognized was the value that was bringing. And what they then did is essentially say, right, go and replicate that across the business. And, you know, it became a very successful model. And what, what I think you're able to do is help the business look forward. I think a lot of finance is about the what's happened in the rearview mirror. I think the really progressive finance functions are looking what, you know, out the front windscreen, what's coming up on the road ahead. How can I help the business understand that? What are the puts and takes? And what decisions can I make today that, I, I probably will only see the influence of in six months' time. If, if you've got a business with a sales cycle that's six months' time, it's the decisions you make today that you will see the financial impact six, 12, 18 months' time. There's not much point in looking in 12 months' time and saying, I wish I'd done something six months ago. I'm far better looking forward and trying to use data to the best extent I can to understand what I should be doing today to get to a better outcome. And, and that idea of like being forward-looking, trying to forecast more effectively, how do you and how have you tried to cope in periods where it's very challenging to do so, like the financial crisis, where at one point, I, I thinking back, I remember I, at the time I was at Accenture, the, the latter part of like Anderson Consulting, of course, and I remember we were talking with one of our partners, it was a managing partner at the time, who looked after a lot of our financial services clients, and he was saying, 
that actually a lot of their a lot of these peers, a lot of the clients, they just don't know what's going to happen in the economy. Like they didn't know whether the future of of the the economic system of the West was going to remain as it was. And similarly with the pandemic, is that it was like unprecedented in a century, and so we we never knew how to handle that. How did you and your team at those times adapt to that, and then try to provide some? not certainty, but some visibility as to what might come. So let me do the pandemic first, and then I'll go back in history to the financial crisis. So, you know, in terms of the pandemic, I think there was pretty much an instant recognition that the budget you had, you might as well put in the bin overnight. It was going to be absolutely irrelevant to the period ahead. And there was absolutely no point in saying, what would I do in this environment? And what what we did was we quickly said, okay, so this is our base case of how we see the world ahead at this particular moment in time. And you, go, you know you're going to have to redo it in three, four weeks' time, but this is the view we have today. And what we said, we're a consumer credit business, was we said, what's another scenario that looks slightly worse than that? And what's a really worse scenario, certainly at the instant of the COVID crisis? And what we said was, if we travel between this base case and this first downside, these are the actions and things we will do as a business. And these are the things we will do today. And these are the things we will do in three, four weeks time. And we took some instant actions to protect the business at that moment in time. And then we said, we will monitor how the business progresses. And we had daily MI which we monitored where we were in these guardrails. And we were looking at everything, literally, you know, five o'clock every evening, we were having a, what does the data tell us today? Certainly in that first three, four months. And good systems and good data enables you to do that. And frankly, you're not looking at what's my income levels. You're looking at what are customers doing? What are customer behaviors? What, are, what, what, is, what, are, what journeys are customers taking through the call center? And where are they looking for help and support? And what, and what are we doing from, from our perspective? What are we doing from a credit stance for both new and existing customers? And we set this in train and, you know, we, we tracked pretty closely to that first set of guardrails through the early stages of COVID. And then we actually outperformed it in the more latter stages of 2020 um, and through into 2021. But nevertheless, we kept that discipline of that MI all the way through. So for the first six months, we were doing it daily. Then we moved it to twice a week. Then we moved it to weekly. But even today, we are still looking at that MI on a weekly basis, despite the fact that you could argue we've definitely come back to more business as usual perspective for the last, what, 12 months since we came out of the last UK lockdown. And then if you go back to the financial crisis, it was again, you know, I was CFO of a bank, it was about understanding on a day-to-day basis our capital and liquidity positions and, again, what customers were doing. And, it, you know, I was fortunate that in both cases, part of this journey I talked about in terms of investing talent, invested a lot in MI and MI capability such that you could understand that. I think if you'd have rolled the clock further back and you don't have that MI, you're, what you don't want to be doing is taking decisions in a vacuum because that's when you're going, I know I need to do something, but what's the data telling me? Well, I haven't got the data to tell me. It's having that data that really helps you make informed decisions. Now, you won't get everything right, but at least you're basing it on the data you see today 
as to what you think is the right course of action to plot for the business? It sounds from the way you described that, that you echo what I'd read about and what McKinsey had commented on, that, that many CFOs and CEOs were pleasantly surprised at the speed at which their very large and complex organizations could move because maybe pre-pandemic there was a certain cadence and it was very regular and a little bit more drawn out. And then when the pandemic hit, as you said, you had to move not to monthly or even weekly, it's to daily. And so was that the case where you actually were able to move far faster than perhaps you might have expected? Yeah, I think if you'd have said pre-pandemic, next week we want to have a daily call on all this MI, there'd been a bit of gnashing of teeth from the teams. But I think what COVID was everybody recognised and we communicated this, we all need to pull and you will be asked to do things over and above quickly. But it is absolutely in the best interest of the business that we're able to do these. And, you know, I think you're also thinking about in COVID, you're doing it, you're asking people to do much more at a period when their whole working environment is changing to being working remotely. And I, I think we're in the fortunate position that the vast, vast majority of all our staff already, we were hot desking, we had laptops and everything else, and we'd invested in Microsoft Teams and tools like this. So we were well equipped to go into it. But it, nevertheless, people worked incredibly effectively, and the tools were there to help people get to the data, understand it, present it in, in that real-time fashion. Five years previous to COVID, a lot of those tools just weren't around in the same way. And I don't think businesses would have been able to adapt in such a, a nimble fashion. And you touch on the part about that the teams working incredibly hard. This seems to be very common across most, most people, most companies you speak about uh, and speak to. But of course, with that, there comes a period where burnout can occur and then people are reflecting on whether they should do something different. And it's been coined as the great resignation, which I think is now top of mind for everyone. So how did you, first of all, try and lead your team and the broader company through that and provide purpose? And then more recently, how have you been trying to like create the, the right environment to keep those very same people? So I think oh, it's a very large question and you could go down very multiple avenues of that, but let me give it a go. I think when you move to remote working, I think the two things I observed and we did was, first of all, you've got to remember that people are at home looking at a screen. Their interactions are who they are talking to. And as an organization and as a function, you need to massively over-communicate almost to an excessive extent because people will feel a bit disconnected. If all I do is look at the screen and I do a series of Teams meetings, that is the way I'm used to, and I'll only see the people I deal with. I think the other aspect of working remotely and that move to COVID is I think we very much leveraged relationships we'd built face-to-face -face in order to get things done and working styles. And we understood people from that, that environment we were used to, which was office-based, and we leveraged those relationships into the remote working. I think as we, we're coming back into a hybrid model whereby we're, you know, we're saying half in the office, half out of the office, and clearly it's relatively early days, but at the moment people are really appreciating that face-to-face -face contact. And certainly for people who've joined the organization, they're getting that kind of water cooler chat that you don't get on a Teams or a Zoom environment. And I think what we lost in the remote working was or that Teams and Zoom reinforce the hierarchy. And we are trying to have a flat structure 
and collaboration and face-to-face -face interactions break down the hierarchy. I don't think Teams and Zoom in the technology really break down that hierarchy. I think they unfortunately reinforce it to a degree. I think then what we've seen is how are we asking people to work in that environment? And we're saying, what we're looking for you to do is, how do you want to work? What, what, what is your working style? I'm giving people the degrees of flexibility. But I think your wider question about how do you stretch and challenge people, which is my route in all the roles I've had is, you know, we talked about that first 100 days and assessing the team. I think what you find in your early period in an organization is, and you have to work with the talent pool you've got. And at that point, unfortunately, you will probably need to go externally to recruit more talent in to bring in a talent pool. Or certainly that's been my experience. What I think you find is as you progress, and you know, I'm now in year six at New Day, is I've got some great stories of people we have stretched, challenged, promoted, seen them grow and develop in the role. And if you give me a choice of taking a chance on someone who I think is good in job A to do job B, I'll always take that chance rather than recruiting in the external market, unless it's very specific technical skills that you absolutely need through your experience and your career. And so for me, if you've got good, talented people, we need to be giving them something new and different every two to three years in order to help motivate and retain them. I mean, the beauty of being in a business that is growing and developing is, you know, as we look at doing new things, you know, we naturally get opportunities. So I always think the greatest stories are, I recruited someone with a job description that I could show you. And two years later, you look at it and say, gosh, there's so much more you've added into that. And my role is so much richer as a result of that because I've stretched the role upwards, downwards, left and right. And as a result of that, people are doing way, way, way more, but are more engaged and more, you know, getting greater experience themselves. It's a really interesting point. What a thing that we're often trying to work at in, in Soldo, we're at scale up stage. So we're just under 300 employees and, and growing fast as well, but trying to build career paths so that as, as exactly what you're describing, so that people have got new opportunities, new jobs, either within the same role or the same area or across the way. Because when you do that, I like the way you said it, I'd rather take a bet on the person who's brilliant at job A, taking on job B, even if it's completely no, new because they've got credibility and, and you know that they're proven. Um, so it's a more a case of nurturing them and keeping them over time. So it's a really interesting way to describe it. Uh, I think the other thing I'd say is, you know, you've also got to recognize some people will do two, three, four years at the organization, do a great job, and, and they go with your thanks and blessing. There is nothing wrong with seeing talent develop. If you've got a talented group of people, there is no way you will keep all of them happy for long journeys of time. But as long as they contribute and do a great job while they're here, let's celebrate that. And have you found as well that with various roles that there have been people in your network that have joined you at several companies or has it actually been quite a new team, distinct team at each organization? I think my journey has been, I, I've looked at the best talent I can recruit into the organization. I actually don't want to go back into old organizations and necessarily, I like to think they still think highly of me and I've left them in a good place to continue their journey. There are cases where people have come across, but I would say that isn't my starting point. Clearly, if there's good people and they're not happy where they are and they approach you, that's a better conversation. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and then touching on, like coming back to one of the points you were touching on earlier on is that the use of technology and about liberating that team that you've just mentioned that you're trying to build and, and challenge and using tools and technology as a way to do so. Uh, what's your approach been at New Day in, in terms of the use of technology? You mentioned planning was a big piece of it. Have there been other big bets that you've made in order to liberate your team and allow them to do more? There's always technology improvements you can make. And some of them are for efficiency. Some of them are because you're outgrowing the existing technology solution. And, and some of them are just, frankly, better ways of working. Other examples are we're a consumer finance function. We've got customers doing over 100 million transactions a year. And we've got tools that reconcile that. And over time, first of all, we've brought it in-house in one instance, but also we've developed really good automated tools and techniques that were constantly evolving to increase that efficiency and automation. I'll take a simple example. Balance sheet reconciliations used to all be manual. We again looked at a cloud-based solution. And what you're able to do in three months is get it to a, to a really good place. And then you incrementally improve from that. But, but I think there are most organizations nowadays have pretty good tools and techniques, but it's that investment. I think the other one is, is data. I think data is, you know, across the firm, we've invested in data warehouses and tools that can interrogate that. And I think we're still on the journey to self-service in terms of that. But if you give people access to data and, and set them free to do good analysis, it's incredible the insight you get. And that's another theme that's come up several times is that, of course, finance has always been a numerical domain and, and it's always been extremely analytical. But with the explosion and availability of data and, and your example of what it's like at New Day is, is, is a great one. It's just a huge volume of data. You also need to think about not just manipulating that in conventional methods, but using things like data science and, and machine learning to do so. Are, are those techniques or approaches that you've toyed with at New Day to try and make sense of this vast volume of data that you have? Yeah. So although we haven't deployed it in um, finance and what we have, we do, you know, we're consumer finance. We've got a credit department, mm -hmm. data analytics, data insight, machine learning is um, part and parcel of how we build our credit models, our understanding of customers. And last year, we introduced our first machine learning credit models. Now, I, I'd say it's mach machine learning with a control on the handle. We don't just let the algorithms run themselves. There's a person monitoring and controlling what they're doing. But nevertheless, that machine learning, you can see it in certain areas and you can see the power that it's we're at the advent of that, but it, you start to see the power that it's going to unleash in the future. I think it's a long journey that we're on in terms of that that machine learning for data, but it'll give us it'll give us some great insights into how we think about certain aspects of the business. And and it's it's fascinating that you talk about that that it being a long term game and and the, the development of of your people and your teams I guess to be prepared for that type of influence in finance, thinking about people who might be looking to emulate you and in, in the path that you've taken and become a CFO one day. What advice would you have for them so that they could be prepared uh, and be successful in the role when the time comes? I think take opportunities. As they arise, I think the couple of things I would say that have always guided me, always make your boss look good. I think take problems off their hands, think ahead, 
really think I've been asked to do this. What is behind that question and where's the next step in it? And if you can think a little bit ahead, you'll put yourself in a great position to be really helpful. I think the other thing, one of the things I observed as I got more senior was there's a lot of time spent on analysis and a lot of time putting PowerPoint decks together that will be used or presented. I think people underinvest in how they're then going to tell that story. And I think you can often see a chief executive or a CFO who looks very articulate with a PowerPoint presentation or something. But other people might be better than me. But my approach is I will think about what key messages I want to get across. And you'll see me either scribble on the page. These are the three key points I want to make or three key points of insight. And think about how you message things because that's really important because, you know, you go up your career, you go through that crossroads of the technical ability will get you so far. It's then how you interact and communicate, gain trust and confidence with people. And you also need to you know, have that level headedness in moments of stress and crises and be a level playing field. But and watch how people more senior do it and look to emulate how they're doing and get that broad experience. I think nowadays the technical will get you so far, but it's that how do I help the business, that commercial side, which most businesses I see are looking for in their CFOs. I think that's great advice for for anyone that's listening uh, and and with the hope of uh, one day becoming a CFO. Paul, thank you for for joining us on the podcast today. It's been brilliant to to hear about your experiences and, and learn from them. One last thing. We want to hear from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.